0: talking with people about how to have a great retirement. This is the Rock Your Retirement Show. We don't talk about money, but we talk about almost everything else you need to rock your retirement. Now, here's your host, Kathy Klein.
1: Warning, today's Rock Your Retirement Show may contain explicit information, and due to the subject matter, you may not want to listen when children are around. Hi, this is Kathy, founder of Rock Your Retirement. I started this show because there are so many things that we do not think about when considering retirement. We baby boomers have been led to believe that retirement is all about money and it's not. Retirement is also about all the other things that you're going to need to consider when you're retired, including sex. Today, we're going to be talking with Beth Montemuro, who is a Ph.D. and professor of sociology at Penn State University in Abington. She's the author of Deserving Desire, Women's Studies of Sexual Evolution, and is currently doing research on men between the ages of 20 and 70 about their own sexual evolutions. Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, This is a subject that is so needed among my listeners. What prompted you to study sexuality?
0: There were two reasons why I decided to pursue this particular study. First, I've always been generally interested in gender and sexuality and how men and women learn to think about sexuality and how they become sexual beings. So I was doing a study, actually my dissertation on bell showers and bachelorette parties. And when I was writing a book about that, I was asking women for photographs from their bachelorette parties. And some of the women said to me, you know, no, I'm not sharing that picture with you. I don't want that picture <laughs> in a book. And even when I explained it was an academic book, not that many people would see it, they still were uncomfortable. And what struck me was the women who said, I'm married now, or I'm a mom now, and I'm just not comfortable with those pictures being out there. So that made me curious about what happens when women get married or when women have babies that makes them think differently about their sexuality. And then I thought, well, what other life changes change the way that you feel about your sexuality or show your sexuality, um, both publicly and privately? So that's really what got me started on this study.
1: How long did it take the study to take? Was it a year, five years, Um, six months?
0: Yeah. So from start to finish, I started doing interviews in 2008 and I did interviews for about two and a half years. And so that was a long time of traveling around and talking with women um, about how their, their sexuality evolved from then, the time that I actually wrote the book, the book was published in 2014. So really, it's a six-year project from the time of data collection to publication.
1: But it was mostly an academic-style book, or was this for the... Because I saw it on Amazon.
0: Yeah, so it certainly is an academic book. It's published by a university press, Rutgers University Press. But that the stories are something that I think relate to many women. Yeah, many women, many people could understand and find resonance in what these women talked about. And I think that, I hope that I presented the stories in a way that's engaging uh, to to a broader audience, not just to academics. And the women who I interviewed, who've read the book, communicated that, that they felt that their stories were told in a way that did justice to them and also was engaging.
1: Well, thank you so much for writing it. I'm in the senior community, obviously, based on the what the show is about, and I've heard different talks on sexuality, and it's amazing to me that people can be sexual even when they're gravely ill. Did you talk to anybody who was ill in your study, or were these all healthy adults?
0: So most of them were healthy adults. Uh, However, there were several people who were disabled or whose partners were disabled or who were, because of age, not necessarily physically disabled, but experienced impotence or um, other forms of uh, erectile dysfunction or other uh, issues that made sexuality a bit more challenging. But yeah, so generally they were healthy adults, but there were some people who did talk about how aging and how physical changes impacted their ability to be sexual.
1: So when they were talking about that, did you find anything that was surprising to you or were there any stories that shocked you?
0: Um, I'm sure there were stories that shocked me. <laughs> um, I'm trying <laughs> to remember if there's anything in particular that stands out. But I, what I'd say that I learned from that was that, you know, sexuality is lifelong. So that even if you couldn't perform the way that you did in your 40s or 30s or 20s, it didn't mean that your desire went away. I do remember one story of a woman who Had been married, she got married in her 20s, and it was a difficult marriage. She was never really compatible with her husband. And so, in her 50s, I believe, she got divorced and met uh, a new man who she married. And very soon into their marriage, he developed prostate cancer and was unable to have intercourse. And she said, you know, unequivocally that the partnership, the companionship, the intimacy that they shared was so much more important than being able to do that one thing. And that that relationship was so much more satisfying later in life because of the respect and and partnership. So yeah, that was certainly a very a moving and uh, important story.
1: Now, do you think that that's more of a feminine trait where we Consider the intimacy to be more important than the sex itself, or is that a trait that men share as well?
0: So, I don't know yet because I'm still interviewing the men, but I will say that I've been surprised with the men that I've interviewed who have expressed a very similar sentiment. I haven't interviewed that many men in their 60s yet, so that remains to be seen, but even with men in their 40s and 50s who talked about just this shifting conception of intimacy. And other research reflects this as well, that there is a change in what's important and what matters as far as sexual satisfaction and pleasure as women and men get older, at least in heterosexual relationships. And so that it's not always about it's understanding and redefining satisfaction so that it can be touch physical touch it can be closeness and it's not necessarily about climax or how it might have been defined when the same people were in their 20s or 30s
1: you know that's that's really a good point because i have a lot of friends and clients who you know are are women men listen to this show too but i would say they most of my listeners are are women and as they get older, they've indicated to me that they don't really want to have sex as much. So what do you do if you're in a 30-year relationship and your husband finds Viagra <laughs> and you're not really ready for that? Did you talk to anybody about that?
0: We talked about that a little bit. And I didn't have many women who were in that who are in that situation. And it may be just Uh because if I had interviewed more women in their sixties or women in their seventies, you know, that I might've seen uh, or heard more about that, that most of the women that I spoke with were generally on the same page with their spouses about frequency of intercourse and uh, just how they wanted to express sexuality to one another. And saw it kind of as like a, just a natural evolution of their relationships So I'm not sure, (laughs) I've read some studies about that. And there's been actually some very interesting studies where they have interviewed women, wives, or sexual partners of men who use Viagra and have found that they don't enjoy it or have the same, uh, you know, it's not necessarily a great thing for them because it's, as they've transitioned, to having less sex or just redefining the relationship, something that kind of jump starts it and takes it back uh, or tries to take it back to the way that it was when they were, again, in their 20s or 30s is not necessarily welcomed at that state. <laughs>
1: Okay, I totally I totally understand that. Um do you think that the men are doing this because they're trying to please their wives and they don't realize that maybe the wives don't want to be pleased in that way or do you think they're doing it because it's something that they personally want to do and they didn't think about what their wife wanted? The reason I ask is because I have noticed just I'm not a professor like you, I'm not a PhD, but I have noticed that men tend to want to please their wives. Yes. And, you know, they're fixers, right? Yeah. They're fixers. And so they're like, ooh, we haven't had this in a while. Let me fix it when maybe it wasn't broken. So what what are the what's the research on that?
0: I think it's a combination of factors. And I think it's both of the things that you said. So I think it is absolutely about wanting to please their partners and about being concerned with their partners still being interested in them if they're not able to perform like they did when they were younger. So I, I think that You factor that in, that concern about their partners and about the stability of their relationships with their concerns about getting older and what does it mean about them if they're not able to do what in many ways defines what a man's sexuality is supposed to be, you know, quote, supposed to be. So that I think that it's very hard to get rid of those ideologies that we have about masculinity and virility and performance, One of the things I'm trying to figure out with the interviews with men is how much for men of all ages, their sexuality is about performance for themselves and how much of it is about performance for their partners because they're concerned about their partner's pleasure and satisfaction.
1: Hmm. Very interesting. Are you in the middle of of that study now or did it just start?
0: I'm in the middle of it. So I've, along with the research assistant, we've done 76 interviews out of- the about 90 to 100. So we're, we're finishing up on data collection. So starting to really get into the analysis of those interviews.
1: Very interesting. How does, that, how does that work when you do a study? How do you get your your interviewees? Do you just put something out on Facebook or how do people respond to a study?
0: Well, there's lots of different ways to do it. So it was much easier recruiting women to talk about sexuality, as is probably not surprising then, than it has been to recruit men. But with the women, I used what's called snowball sampling. So I started with people that I know, and then I asked them for referrals. And then those interviewees uh, referred me to other people who referred me to other people and so on and so on. I also did some, actually, I didn't post on Facebook for that study. Um, And with that method of sampling, I found women. I also um, recruited at senior citizen centers, and that helped me to find women in their 60s. With men, I have been recruiting on Facebook and um, also trying to snowball sample, but men have been less comfortable referring other men to the study. Whereas with the women, I'd say probably 60 to 75% of the women were referred by somebody else. At this point, none of the 76 men have referred anybody else. It's really interesting. So we've also been recruiting on Craigslist and going to senior centers and trying to find men however we can who are willing to talk about their sexuality.
1: Is it, um, what's the word, confidential?
0: Yes, yeah, it's confidential. So there, there's no names associated with any of the stories.
1: Okay, so if there's a man listening to this episode and you haven't ended the study yet, what what's your estimated time because, you know, podcasts live forever. What's your estimated time for this study to end?
0: So I'll be writing through the next year. So until through the end of 2018 and 2016, 2017, 2018 is probably when I hope to have a book close to being published.
1: But if if I have a man who's interested in helping you out, when would the deadline be for that man to reach out to you?
0: Probably through the end of 2016, maybe a little bit early into 2017. I certainly would encourage anybody, even if it's too late, I'd be happy to hear from somebody. And I welcome particularly men in their 60s. That's the hardest demographic to recruit.
1: Okay. What are the ages? So the book that you wrote for women, Yes. what were the age ranges for, for that?
0: 20 to 68.
1: Okay. And for men, you're looking at 20 to 70?
0: Yeah. So it's the same age bracket. It just happened to be for the women in their 60s. The oldest woman I interviewed was 68. So yes, looking at people between the ages of 20 and, and 69.
1: Okay, well, that's that's good to know. Did anything surprise you?
0: A lot of things surprised me. What was particularly surprising was the significance of partners for women in defining their sexual selves. So one of the questions that I had before I started the study was how do we become sexual selves and is this something that you really have a personal sense of what your desire is, what you want, what's important to you? And that what I found was most of the women, Did not really have a strong sense of their personal sexual self, that much of it was developed as the result of interaction from their partners. So when they felt their desire was validated by a partner, by a partner who was particularly encouraging of their sexual interest that that really helped them to become much more confident. So the confidence grew as the result of validation or encouragement or affirmation from partners rather than the women becoming more confident independently and thinking about their sexual selves independently.
1: That is really interesting. I wouldn't think that, especially in younger women, I would think that would be the, the case for baby boomers, but not necessarily the women that you interviewed that were younger
0: yeah and and that's also something that was surprising to me was how while there were generational differences that for many of the women, the younger women that they still had that same sense of ambivalence about their sexuality and that and that they sought external validation for that it was okay, you know it's okay for them to have to to like sex it was okay for them to want sex, it was okay for them to to feel desire. So that's why I called the book "Deserving Desire," right? So that women are learning to that they deserve to feel that they're entitled to feel a sense of desire that it's okay.
1: Do you think that this is something that is it's in our DNA?
0: As a sociologist, I would say no, because you know sociology focuses so much more on environment. I think that it's something that it's in our cultural DNA, perhaps that we really teach girls this uh, still that there's still so many mixed messages out there about what's okay. So that, well, girls, you know, teenage girls, adolescent girls, girls and their women and their young women in their twenties are encouraged to both be sexual and not be sexual, right. To be hypersexual, to really show off their sexuality and make themselves look desirable. But at the same time, they're punished for expressing that desire or expressing it in a way that is seen as, culturally inappropriate so you know with more than one partner or wanting sex more than their than their partner or their their spouse or boyfriend so uh, to me it's not that surprising because of the fact that the culture gives women all these mixed messages about sexuality and with older women too you get mixed messages about desirability and that You we have such a youth-oriented culture and a youth-oriented focus on what's desirable that it becomes difficult for women. So once women are in relationships where it's okay, it's socially sanctioned to have sex, then there's concerns about, well, am I still desirable because the culture tells me I'm not desirable anymore?
1: You know, that was one of the things that I noticed in Downton Abbey and the head maid was getting married to the butler. One of her concerns was whether or not they were going to have sex. So I'll, I'll just tell my audience members that one of the main stars of the show was the, the head maid, the older, the older woman, and she was going to marry the butler and she was talking with the cook. She wanted the cook to go ask the butler if he expected to have sex with her. Mm. (laughs) And the reason why she was concerned was because she was not a young woman. She was probably in her mid to late sixties on the show. And so it's funny that this is something that you just said was actually on a TV show. Mm -hmm. And they were showing how this was very upsetting to her. She didn't want him to see her. And he reacted in a very kind, he said, I don't, I don't care what you look like. I want to be close to you. And I expect that we are going to be close in that way once we get married. So I found that to be very interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So Beth, tell me about Delia.
0: So Delia was one of my most memorable interviewees. Uh, She was 60 at the time that I met her, and she was single at that point. She had been married twice before, but what was really striking with her was what she told me about how her sexual self-confidence developed. She was unique in that she had a mother who was open with her, um, who told her that sex was normal, and desire was normal, and that it was okay if you weren't in a relationship with somebody that you cared about. What was really striking was when she told me about the benefit of her first marriage, even though it was a very short marriage. She got married when she was 20, and she told me that even though they were just married for six years that she really learned her desire was validated in that relationship. She said that her husband had taught her how to feel um, not to be embarrassed by desire and that he was more receptive when she was more interested in being sexual and that she really became comfortable with her body as the result of that. And then she, you know, she got divorced, she got married again. And in her second marriage, She was married to a man who was not that interested in sex. And so that marriage also didn't last very long because she realized from what she had learned about herself in in the first marriage how important her sexuality was to her and how much it made a difference. So now at 60, at the time that I interviewed her, she was so self-confident and she didn't feel like she needed a partner to feel good about her sexuality. Unlike most of the women I spoke with, for her, her sexuality was about her, not about a relationship. And she's dated many men, men of different races, younger men, older men, foreign men, and has really learned to stop caring about how other people might judge her behavior and started acting based on her own desire. So when I asked her, what had changed during her fifties that allowed her to accept herself. She said, she thinks that in general, by just the result of aging and maturity and having fewer responsibilities for caring for other people, that women can be more self-centered, which cultivates greater self-awareness. And so I thought that that was really interesting and really striking just about, you know, as you're, as you shift and as your life is less about other people, it can be more about you and you can discover more about what you want.
1: Very interesting. Well, thank you so much, Beth. So let's see here. I want to make sure that I had so many questions for you. And now I'm, I'm thinking, oh, I'd, I want to make sure that I don't forget anything. Tell me why you think that sex in older age is even important. Why is sex in older ages even important?
0: I think that it is important because it's certainly that there's research that shows that it has physiological benefits that it reduces stress that you know people who are sexually active who continue to be sexually active are still are, are healthier and that so that there's certainly the the health benefits which I'm I'm not an expert on but have have read about that there are those benefits but I also think that intimacy in general is really important in relationships and that remains important in relationships throughout your life so that Finding a way to express intimacy, whether, you know, and when I'm saying, you know, sex is important, I, I don't just mean intercourse is important, but some type of physical intimacy is important in relationships because it's something that you're sharing with that one person, if that's your preference, and that you're, it's allowing you to continue to feel engaged and connected um, in, in ways that you don't with other people. So I think it really adds something to relationships. And certainly that's what a lot of my interviewees in their fifties and sixties suggested that it was, um, it was just, it, it helped them to feel like feeling desire, uh, in general, helped them feel more engaged with, you know, with, with the world.
1: That actually makes a lot of sense. So wrapping up, was there anything that you learned that inspired you?
0: A lot of the women inspired me. Certainly. I, you know, I, I think that it was that I was in my late 30s when I was started doing the study. Um, now in my early 40s, and so that it, it was very inspirational to hear about the importance of intimacy throughout women's lives and about continued desire. It was also uh, it was also quite nice to hear just varying experiences with menopause and how so many women talked about how it benefited them in ways that I think we don't talk about culturally. For example, one woman who had had a lot of difficulty in her life with her sexuality because of having been sexually abused when she was a child, that she talked about how she had never been sure about being a mother and that she never really, she always felt kind of a pressure to make a decision about it. And that for her, menopause was then a relief because she said it just, it got her off the fence. You know, it was something where she no longer had that choice. And for her, that was very freeing. And a couple other women talked about how menopause was beneficial because (laughs) women who were unpartnered in their 50s and who had talked about having strong desire, um, that they kind of liked having something that pulled it back a little bit for them because it was hard when they felt like teenagers but weren't teenagers and so that they appreciated just having some type of a, a shift in their in their desire. But other women talked about how there was no change associated with men, no change in their sexuality associated with menopause. So just hearing that variety of experience rather than just hearing the story that we get, I think, from popular culture that it's all about sexual decline was was very interesting to me.
1: Well, because menopause, think about it, it's it's menopause. <laughs> <laughs> there's no more men after menopause (laughs) you know your body changes I'm going through that right now and your body changes when you're going through menopause and it is not fun you know my girlfriends and I sit around and all of a sudden one of us will be sweating and, and we'll say oh okay and I joke I say you know I wish I could turn this on and off at will you know, the other day I was really cold, uh-huh. <laughs> I thought I wish I could just turn it on, you know, or or I could go skiing and I wouldn't have to, you know, put those little warmer things in my, in my gloves anymore. But no, it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. So, so all of you uh, scientists that are working on studying menopause, could you please, please, please figure out a way to where we could turn it on and off? <laughs> that would be, that would be really great. Beth, this has been really interesting. Thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining what your book is about and giving us some tips and some inspiration for people who are going through the the aging process and still wanting to keep our sex lives up. I, I really appreciate it. How can people get a hold of you if they want to reach out to you to either be in a study or to follow you? what's your contact information?
0: Sure. So thank you very much for inviting me to be on the show as well. I have uh, a website. If you go to abington.psu.edu, Abington is A-B-I-N-G-T-O-N.psu.edu and either search for Beth Montemuro or it's abington.psu.edu edu slash Beth Montemiro, you'll find my information. I also have a Facebook page for my book that's called Deserving Desire. So either of those ways. And then my email address is E, as in Elizabeth, A, Ann, as in Ann, M, as in Montemiro, one 5 at psu.edu
1: and i'll have links to the contact information for you in the show notes as well so thank you so much beth for coming on the show i really appreciate it for my listeners we will see you next week on
0: rock your retirement thanks for listening to the rock your retirement show if you are rocking your retirement or know someone who would make a great guest on our show please send us an email at podcast at rockyourretirement.com.
1: Wasn't that a great interview? I had so much fun. Guess what? you have the opportunity to win a signed copy of Beth's book, Deserving Desire. I have it right here in my hands, and if you win, I will personally mail it to you. One caveat, though, you do need to live in the United States in order to win the book. Now, how do you win? Just go to rockyourretirement.com drawing and fill out the form. You must enter by August 12th, 2016 at 5 p.m. San Diego time. We'll be announcing the winner on Monday, August 15th through the Facebook group and the winner will be notified by email. Oh, and by the way, when I say San Diego time, I mean San Diego, California, which is Pacific time. Good luck, everyone. I'm so excited. I hope you win. Hi, this is Kathy. When I'm not hosting Rock Your Retirement, I'm helping people with their Medicare insurance. One of the times you need to check your Medicare insurance is when you've moved. To get my free guide, Five Things You Need to Know About Medicare When You Are Moving, just go to medicarequick.com slash move. And in the meantime, listen to these cool disclosures. Neither Medicare Quick nor its agents is connected with the Federal Medicare program. Medical insurance licensed in the states of California, Florida, Nevada, and Texas, and Medicare Advantage and Prescription Drug Plan Service Areas vary. California Insurance License 0797-566. Oh wait, I wanted to thank you again for listening to the Rocky Retirement Show. If you're a new listener, a good place to start is episode 116.